Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning and welcome to winter. How cold is it? What about that wind chill factor? Uh, Again, snow on the ranges, below a thousand metres, down to 900 metres of dusting in the mountains and it's chilly this morning. I hope you're okay. Uh, the SES, God love them. I, I'd always call them the Angels in Orange. They've been busy attending, uh, I think, over a thousand jobs in New South Wales. Fallen power lines, fallen trees uh, due to the strong gusty winds. And we had a bit of rain yesterday as well. Um, but there's more precipitation in the way of snow that's expected to fall in the next day or so. In particular, obviously, in the Alpine region which looks very wintry. Well, it is winter, the first day of June. Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have your company around Australia. Here on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform, on TuneIn and on social media, including our podcast platform, um, the Prawncast. If you're listening to the Prawncast, the podcast, please give it a share on your socials. We'd appreciate it. Well, the new look Anthony Albanese government is taking shape. The new ministry about to be sworn in today in Canberra, a day after the caucus met for the first time yesterday, where Albo made a number of uh, uh, announcements. Although, mind you, uh, he didn't really say anything different to than his acceptance speech. He had a good crack at Scott Morrison, though. Uh, talking about, you know, the, the fact that there would be more inclusivity and less division. Um, now, Jim Chalmers, the new treasurer, has hit the ground running. He's promised there will be no new tax in order to repair the budget. So no levy, if you like. I'll get to that story throughout the course of the morning as well. Um, Labor has formed a, uh, a majority government with more uh, counting completed, well, almost yesterday, Andrew Constance, the former New South Wales Transport Minister, looks likely not to be packing his bags to Canberra. Yeah, the very marginal South Coast seat looks to be going to Labor, although it's still probably a little premature to call it, even though New South Wales Labor have. Okay, well, Labor, if they do get to 77 seats, of course, it means that they will have a slight advantage in the Parliament. It means they will have their own Speaker. We'll just have to wait and see. Okay, now with the uh, fuel, speaking of taxes, we know we've had our fuel excise halved, and that'll be the case from 44 down to 22 cents until the end of September. Problem is, in, in implementing that, the former government under Scott Morrison actually whacked up the price for our truckies on diesel, and it's having a massive impact. In South Australia in particular, uh, their equivalent to the NRMA is saying that Unfortunately, many truck companies are going to the wall because they can't continue without the uh, the offset that they were originally given. Um, anyway, I'll get to that story. The, I mean, what all that means, of course, is as truckies do it tough, many facing, you know, being wiped out of business, what it ultimately will lead to is increased prices at the supermarket. And they're already skyrocketing with inflation. 
I'll get to that story and plenty others as well throughout the course of the morning. Give us a like on Facebook, follow the commentary there. I put a stack of stories up yesterday and many of you commented. Thank you for that. Um, You can also, if you don't mind, give us a subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. It's up and running. Um, What, it's been up for five days? We're doing okay. What are we, just shy of 650 or so subscribers? If you get the chance as well, check out our our fundraiser, the GoFundMe for Marcus Paul in the morning so we can continue being an alternative voice in the Australian media landscape. All the news, uh, we'll have that from our friends at Air, um, Air News on the way. Some great tunes to kick off your Wednesday morning, try and keep us all warm. And of course, my views and yours. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back to the program. Great to have you company. Well, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is poised to unveil his ministry after addressing Labor senators and MPs at the first federal caucus yesterday in Canberra. It happened as Labor secured a majority government. Now, the Prime Minister yesterday addressed Labor senators and MPs at the first federal caucus since the party won the election. I want to remind you that you shouldn't waste a day in government. We don't intend to do that, said Albo yesterday. He committed on behalf of his government to the implementation of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. He will make a full announcement on ministerial portfolios in the hours to come. He said yesterday, Australians have placed their trust in us and that brings with it an enormous responsibility, an enormous responsibility to deliver on the commitments that we made, the commitments for which we have made, have a clear mandate as part of a majority Labor government and we will deliver. I'll play a little of what Anthony Albanese had to say in just a moment. Now, Albo also said the world had noticed Australia's government change citing Penny Wong's successful visit to Fiji and the Quad Leader's statement welcoming Australia's most ambitious 2030 carbon emissions target. Mr Albanese said, we're joining again in the global effort, which we needed to do after nine wasted years. Labor's left and right factions met yesterday where they nominated their picks for the federal cabinet. The new ministry will be sworn in by the Governor-General today. Mr Albanese has formed a majority Labor government after Labor secured the Melbourne seat of McNamara on Monday night with MP Josh Burns re-elected. This means that Labor will hold at least 76 seats, the minimum required to form a majority government. Okay, well, uh, there may well be another one as well, but we'll keep an eye on that so they could get to 77. Here is what Anthony Albanese had to say yesterday addressing the Labor caucus for the first time since they formed government. One of the things that we've seen in this uh, country rejected is the idea that government is about sitting down and working out how to wedge people, how to cause division. And we saw that during the election campaign uh, whereby some very vulnerable people were singled out uh, for uh, adding to their vilification. Uh, We're a better country than that. We shouldn't do that ever, ever. Uh, What we should do is seek to reach out and to be an inclusive society. And how we conduct ourselves is very much a part of that. My objective is to uh, not uh, keep uh, this room as it is. My objective is to grow this room and to grow uh, a, a Labor government. I think that we can do it. 
And if we keep uh, our discipline, implement the program which is there, uh, there is no reason why uh, we can't uh, continue to be uh, even more successful than we have been at this point. All right, there he is, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese addressing his caucus yesterday as the new federal government takes shape. Uh, Labor reaching enough seats for majority government as Albo prepared to announce his ministry as well. All right, well, what else has been making news there in Canberra? Labor's claimed a win in Gilmore, but the AEC and the ABC are not calling it just yet. Of course, Labor says it's won Gilmore as the Australian Electoral Commission continues to count for the marginal New South Wales South Coast seat. This is the one that Liberal challenger Andrew Constance, former New South Wales minister, is running in. But ABC elections analyst Anthony Green isn't calling the seat just yet. Yesterday at around four o'clock, Labor were ahead by some 222 votes. With more than 88% of the vote counted, the incumbent Fiona Phillips said the party was confident it would retain the seat. She said, New South Wales Labor has made the decision to call the seat of Gilmore to me. We've seen, a, a, again, a strong trend toward me with absentee votes, which is unlikely, and I'm thrilled with the result. Anyway, Ms Phillips also acknowledged there was still a process to go before the declaration of the polls, and she paid tribute to Andrew Constance. Anyway, uh, like I said, and I'm no fan of Andrew Constance, um, I don't think he deserves a crack at federal politics, to be perfectly honest, considering the poor state that he left transport for New South Wales in. Meanwhile, the ABC does project that Liberal MP Michael Sukar will retain the seat of Deakin in Victoria ahead of Labor candidate Mac Gregg. That was announced late yesterday afternoon. Well, finally, Jim Chalmers had a crack at opposition leader Peter Dutton on Dutton's first day in the job. Uh, Treasurer Jim Chalmers says Liberal leader Peter Dutton is, quote, just a different kind of bulldozer, unquote, referencing a line from the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison during the election campaign. Speaking to Sky News, Chalmers said the Labor government intended to implement their cleaner, cheaper energy policy, but says the opposition leader would be playing from the same handbook as those before him. Here's a quote. To be blunt about it, I think Peter Dutton is just a different kind of bulldozer. He's a different bulldozer with a different coat of paint. I suspect he will play from the Tony Abbott playbook and the Scott Morrison playbook, and that shows that the Liberal Party have learnt absolutely nothing from the election result. Okay, well, there we go. And, of course, I mentioned earlier in the program that the Treasurer, Mr Chalmers, says the new Albanese government although it's facing significant economic issues, will not consider introducing a budget repair levy or a new tax. Of course, they say the uh, former governments left a massive challenge with the national budget, which will take years to fix. But a budget repair levy, like one imposed under Tony Abbott's prime ministership back in 2014, is not on the cards. Rather... They are looking at making savings rather than introducing more taxes. As Mr Chalmers said, the first port of call is to trim spending. We've already proposed $11 billion in budget improvements before the election, so that is our priority. All right, Marcus Paul in the morning. 
Wednesday morning, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. An important question to ask, and I'm speaking to myself here as well, do you donate blood? I have once or twice, but not for a long time. Perhaps I should. We're told that Australia's blood stocks are expected to drop to their lowest point since the start of the pandemic. That's after donations took a nosedive during the current surge in flu cases across the country, as well as colds and covid The Australian Red Cross Lifeblood needs 17,500 donors to help raise supply over the next week, with their stocks of A, O and B blood groups now under pressure. The organisation says it will have two days of supply left by the middle of the week. That's a worry. Lifeblood's Kath Stone said there had been large numbers of appointment cancellations and no-shows. She told the ABC what we're seeing is another cycle of cold and flu sweep through the country and that's what's having the impact. We are starting to feel the pinch now. So Miss Stone is urging anyone who is eligible to donate and is well and healthy to book an appointment now. There are patients in hospitals right now who are relying on blood for cancer treatment, surgery, accidents and complicated births. Every blood donation can help save up to three lives, according to Ms Stone. Anyone who is recovering from COVID-19 and wants to give blood should wait for seven days of being symptom-free. Now, there are advocates that are calling for gay men to be able to donate. I forgot we were in the Stone Age still, for goodness sake. While Miss Stone said the eligibility rules for donors were constantly reviewed and updated, some advocates would like to see more done to expand the pool of donors. Bisexual and gay men, as well as trans women who've had sex with men in the last three months, cannot give blood in Australia. LGBTIQA plus advocate and Just Equal Australia spokesman Rodney Croom said it was time for this to change. And I agree. It's outdated, it's discriminatory, and it means there are fewer blood donors available to save lives. The Red Cross Lifeblood Service is literally begging people to donate, yet they're saying to gay men who are safe to donate, we don't want you. It's hard to see that as anything but discrimination. It no longer makes any sense, according to advocates. The rates of new HIV infections among gay men is going down in Australia, whereas the rates of infection amongst heterosexual people is actually going up. Canada, for instance, this year removed the ban on blood donations from gay men, with the country's health department describing it as a significant milestone toward a more inclusive blood donation system. Their Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, said the change was long overdue, saying the old approach was, quote, discriminatory and wrong. Mr Croom said he would like to see Australia take a similar approach, with other countries, including the United Kingdom and France, also implementing a system that assesses the individual risks of every donor. It means there will be more safe blood available to save lives, and it means there will be less discrimination. Yeah, I don't understand why we don't do it here in Australia either. If the ban is lifted, it would mean an estimated 25,000 litres of extra blood would be available each year. Marcus Paul in the morning. Wednesday morning, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. Look, one of the big things the New South Wales government has prided itself on is providing big infrastructure projects, but that may well be a thing of the past. 
infrastructure mega projects, we're told, like the Northern Beaches Link, the Parramatta Light Rail Extension, they could be, well, basically shelved because of a new report from Infrastructure New South Wales. It will pave the way, I guess, if you like, for a, uh, a change in direction, a reversal on key promises by the New South Wales government. Uh, the latest state infrastructure strategy report, now this is a report delivered every five years, it's out this week. It's called for smaller investments to be prioritised over the big ticket items. So major projects are likely to face significant delivery challenges in the near to medium term. It, you know how they work, they always blow out budget-wise and we've had some issues with many of them. The Infrastructure New South Wales report has called for the government to, quote, reconsider the timing and need for major projects including the Beaches Link, Parramatta's Light Rail Stage 2, and also uh, what we talked about the other week, the Katoomba to Lithgow Tunnel. Regional major dam projects are also set to be shelved, and further stages to Sydney Metro and rail projects. Um, the state government, quote, should reconsider the urgency for these projects, the reporters found. But as recently as December, the Infrastructure Minister of New South Wales, Rob Stokes, pledged that the Beaches Link would be delivered. He told Sydney Media, that's the commitment that's been made repeatedly to the people of the Northern Beaches. We are keen to get on with it. Now, he told the media yesterday that the government remains committed to all major projects but he indicated some could be delayed. We must now consider the advice from Infrastructure New South Wales in relation to how we sequence our record infrastructure pipeline in light of the extraordinary global headwinds. Well, the Premier, Dominic Perrottet, has previously indicated that the Beaches Link and Parramatta Light Rail Extension could be reassessed amid increasing costs, despite the government previously committing to the projects. Infrastructure New South Wales Chairman Graham Bradley told the Daily Telegraph that overcommitting to major projects would make it very challenging for the government in delivering everything it's promised. Skills shortages risk the government not being able to deliver these projects as cost-effectively as you would want to. More of the focus over the next five to ten years should be on getting smaller to mid-sized projects more quickly delivered. It has previously been estimated that the Western Harbour Tunnel and Beaches Link could cost up to $14 billion. The government also committed $50 million to fund a business case for Stage 2 of the Parramatta Light Rail. Now, Infrastructure New South Wales' report outlining its advice for the next 20 years of infrastructure investment also calls for the government to sustain high levels of infrastructure funding including through cash gain from asset recycling. Oh dear, the old asset recycling. In other words, privatising. The report also called for resilience infrastructure to be sped up, like raising of the Warragamba Dam wall, and for more investment in infrastructure to support housing supply in Sydney's northwest and southwest of the city. There we go. So, some of the key Infrastructure New South Wales recommendations in their report, rapid bus networks and the Western Parkland City Transport Program 
Fund and deliver the fast rail strategy. Improve freight network pinch points like Moorbank Intermodel Precinct, the M5 and Liverpool CBD Bypass, Parramatta's Outer Ring Road and Parramatta CBD Bypass, and also, as I mentioned, raising the Warragamba Dam Wall and improving local roads in the Hawkesbury and Nepean Valley. But the big ones, Katoomba to Lithgow Tunnel, Parramatta Light Rail Stage 2 and further Sydney Metro and Rail projects, along with the Beaches Link and maybe even the M6 Stage 2 that runs down toward the Illawarra, uh, that could be shelved for now. Well, there we go. What do you make of it all? Let me know. Alrighty, welcome back to the program. Uh, this headline caught my attention yesterday in one of the papers from the toilet to the tap water plan. What? Recycled sewerage could be put in the drinking supply in a bid to enhance long-term water security, according to a government agency. A major infrastructure New South Wales report, the one that I mentioned previously, has called for the government to develop roadmaps for the adoption of purified recycled drinking water as a wastewater management tool and water supply solution. Using purified recycled water for drinking would involve purifying, purifying wastewater, including from toilets to a standard clean enough to drink. The state infrastructure strategy acknowledged that negative public perceptions would be a barrier to using purified wastewater for drinking purposes. No kidding. It stated it can take significant time to build community support. Water recycling and reuse is a proven cost-effective technology and meets stringent safety standards, according to the report. It also noted that a number of jurisdictions use purified recycled water for drinking. In Perth, for instance, purified recycled water accounts for around 4% of their water supply. The proposal is one of a range of recommendations to increase the state's water security. Those recommendations also included proposing alternatives to new dams in the Peel, the Lachlan and Border River catchments. Infrastructure New South Wales said the current water resources and infrastructure are sufficient to meet future demand, while Minister for Infrastructure Rob Stokes wouldn't say whether or not the government would consider putting purified recycled water in our drinking supply. That's in New South Wales. What do you make of it? Uh, would you feel comfortable drinking purified water? Maybe you already do. Maybe you're one of our listeners and followers over there in WA in Perth. <laughs> I'd be interested. Let me know on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul, in the morning. Uh, speaking of water, motorists across New South Wales are struggling still to avoid potholes and damaged bitumen after months of consistent flooding and torrential rainfall continues to delay repairs and cause new damage. Uh, this would be the, uh, the time, I think, to be in the business of selling tyres. NRMA spokesman Peter Curry said the relentless rainfall would continue to create potholes and hold up restoration. 
He said yesterday the sustained rain is making it difficult for councils to get out and fix the potholes properly, which means that existing potholes get even bigger and it can also create new ones. The biggest challenge right now is the lack of decent dry weather stopping councils from fixing them. Now, the NRMA urges motorists to drive with patience as operations were likely to last, well, months. Uh, Mr Curry said we have seen significant increases in pothole-related problems and don't anticipate anything different with the sustained and continuous wet weather. Now, despite the unceasing weather conditions, the Inner West Council in Sydney is working diligently to try and fix those potholes like the one pictured here in Dulwich Hill. I'm having a look at it. Wow, I think it's big enough to hold a family full of goldfish. Now, in that area alone, the Inner West, that council has repaired 846 potholes so far. That's in May alone, just in this last month. Even with their crews' work being affected by continuing rainfall, that's according to their media and communications coordinator, uh, Elizabeth Heath. Miss Heath added to address the recent increase in potholes caused by flooding, the council put additional resources into pothole repair. She says they've committed to repairing the reported potholes within three working days. Well, is that happening out in your neck of the woods if you live in these areas that are affected by ongoing rainfall and massive potholes? Let me know. Now, you will be pleased to hear that more funds will be invested into fixing Sydney's roads. In the last two years, in the inner west anyway, the council allocated almost $22 million and next year they'll spend $13 million. But that's just in Sydney's inner west, what's happening around your neck of the woods. And have you had issues with potholes? Uh, we have. Uh, we've taken one of our cars in to get a, a couple of tyres repaired, in fact two of them. I'd love to hear your story. You can let me know on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning. Welcome to winter on this Wednesday morning. It's the first day of June. Uh, this is Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, I'm told that businesses in New South Wales phasing out lightweight plastic bags will now be given a grace period with the Premier Dominic Perrottet insisting the ban on single-use bags was not about uh, well, penalising or hitting small companies. <clears throat> Excuse me. Environment Minister James Griffin revealed yesterday that two days before the ban was set to come in place, so it's in place from today, that is plastic bags, there would be a transitional period which would result in minimal penalties being slapped on non-complying businesses. Now, despite warning of a potential $250,000 fine for businesses who flout the rules when the measures were announced last week, Mr Griffin said the weeks following the ban would focus on education rather than fines and enforcement. However, businesses that continue to ignore the ban on single-use plastic bags less than 35 microns thick would be liable for the whopping fine. Now, the minister said, we're going to take a common sense approach to this. The focus isn't on penalties. From June the 1st, which is today, what we're doing is continuing to educate and engage with businesses, particularly smaller ones. Then following from that, there's opportunities for warnings or penalties. It's not a heavy handed approach. 
The businesses we're concerned about are the ones who thumb their noses at the bans. That's when we may resort to fines. It all comes as Labor's small business spokesman, Steve Camper, claimed the government had not publicised the ban enough. I tend to agree. I haven't heard a lot of it in the mainstream media. He says a lack of notice could force businesses to throw thousands of flimsy bags now that they still have their stockpiles into, into landfill. He said the government promised education and behaviour change information to assist the transition, but the campaign was left far too late and was nowhere near adequate to reach all businesses, according to the state opposition. Mr Camper goes on. Many retailers are reporting they only found out about the changes last week. Now, Dominic Perrottet has backed the grace period on the bag ban, saying the transition to the lightweight bags being banned could even be extended. He said yesterday, it's not about penalising businesses. This is about having a cleaner state and more environmentally friendly practices. Well, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. So there will be a grace period for a couple of weeks. But as of today, okay, single-use plastic bags are now banned in New South Wales. What do you make of that? Do you agree, disagree? Let me know. You can uh, give us a hoy on the hotline 0406521250 or let me know your thoughts on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back, Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has announced a proposed freeze on handgun ownership in his country that would effectively ban their importation and sale. Of course, it follows recent mass shootings in the United States. The bill must still be passed by Parliament with the ruling Liberal Party only holding a minority of seats. Now, Mr. Trudeau told a news conference earlier this week as he was joined by dozens of families and friends of victims of gun violence that we're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns, said Mr. Trudeau. Days after Canada's worst mass shooting left 23 dead in the rural Nova Scotia in April back in 2020, the government banned 1,500 types of military-grade or assault-style firearms. But earlier this week, Mr Trudeau acknowledged that gun violence in his country continues to rise. The government statistical agency reported last week that firearms-related violent crimes account for less than 3% of all violent crimes in Canada. But since 2009, the per capita rate of guns being pointed at someone has nearly tripled, while the rate at which a gun was fired with an intent to kill or wound is up some fivefold. And almost two-thirds of gun crimes in urban areas involved handguns in Canada. Uh, police 
often point to smuggling across the border from the United States as a problem. Of course, the US is reeling from recent shootings at a school in Texas and at a supermarket in New York State. Now, that's the main problem, the main source of handguns coming across the border into Canada. Canada's Public Safety Minister, Marco Mendoncino, estimated there are around one million handguns in his country, up significantly from a decade ago. As he announced the bill, Justin Trudeau said fewer guns meant fewer people would be uh, meant, meant people would be safer. He went on to say people should be free to go to the supermarket, their school, their place of worship without fear. People should be free to go to the park or a birthday party without worrying what might happen from a stray bullet. Gun violence is a complex problem, he said. But at the end of the day, the math is really quite simple. The fewer guns in our communities the safer everyone will be. Now, the proposed law would also strip anyone involved in domestic violence or stalking of their firearms licence, and it would take away guns from those deemed to be a risk to themselves or to others, as well as strengthen border security and criminal penalties for gun trafficking. It would also ban long gun magazines capable of holding more than five bullets. Well, plenty of you have had your say on the Facebook page about this. Mark Elder says, well, Marcus, leadership looks like this. Although Nathan upset quite a few of our followers by saying probably a bit too extreme. But Australia has a good system. Limit what firearms are sold and to whom. No nutcases to own them by regulation. Well, that wasn't as controversial as Jared's comment. Jared says, Marcus, never let a good tragedy go to waste, I guess, by which I mean cynically using them as an excuse to further his own political agenda. So Jared's having a crack at Justin Trudeau there. Aaron's not having any of that. Aaron says, right, because it couldn't possibly be because he's actually attempting to reduce harm. That would be ridiculous, right? Anyway, others like Mandy say it's a smart move if it gets through. And Anthony says, well, it would pass through because at least Canadians have common sense. Unlike Trump voters who think they are back in a civil war some centuries ago. All right, well, plenty of opportunity still for you to have your say. It's up on the Facebook page. Marcus Paul in the morning. Welcome back. Back to a little politics. You may recall just a, a few weeks ago I touched on this story with the charity Guide Dogs Australia launching an official investigation into its Chief Executive Officer, Karen Hayes. Uh, Karen yesterday resigned from her position after endorsing the former Treasurer of Australia, Josh Frydenberg, in the seat of Kuyong during the lead-up to the federal election. Now, that sparked controversy. I don't think there's a problem with a private citizen, say, if Miss Hayes had her own Facebook or Twitter account or whatever, endorsing who she likes. We can all support who we like. That's the beauty of being in a democracy. The problem was uh, the charity, after launching an official investigation, found that social media videos and flyers dropped in residents' letterboxes included uh, branding from Guide Dogs Australia. The material featured Miss Hayes holding a puppy and included her title as the charity's CEO. Uh, she basically outlined why she was voting for Josh Frydenberg, and that's fine. You can vote for whoever you like. But the problem was, 
the endorsement was made without the knowledge of Guide Dogs Victorian's board and Miss Hayes was stood down pending the results of the investigation. Interestingly, Josh Frydenberg mentioned Miss Hayes by name both during his campaign launch and when he spoke to concede defeat to the Teal Independent Monique Ryan. Now, the charity's investigation is ongoing and the organisation's chair, Ian Edwards, has stepped in as acting CEO. Miss Hayes was in her role for over a decade, but I think this is a lesson. Uh, CEOs, no matter who they are and whether they work for a charity or otherwise, need to be a little careful. If you're going to endorse a political candidate of any colour, you have to ensure, first of all, you get permission from the board, but importantly, are you able to use the branding of your organisation to support a particular candidate? Well, obviously, if you're a charity like the Guide Dogs, no, you can't. And that is why the CEO has now gone. Okay, Marcus Paul in the morning. Just a a little other news um, from the last 24 hours. Our new federal treasurer, Jim Chalmers, says the Albanese government is facing significant economic issues, but it will not consider introducing a budget repair levy. So in other words, he's ruling out a tax. Mr Chalmers said his predecessors left massive challenges within the national budget, which will take years to fix. A budget repair levy was imposed on Australia's top earners under Tony Abbott's Prime Ministership back in 2014, but the new Treasurer says the government will look to make savings rather than introduce more taxes. He said we think the first port of call is to trim spending. We've already proposed $11 billion in budget improvements before the election. So that is our priority. If you want to comment, Marcus Paul in the morning on Facebook or have your say on, of course, our hotline 0406 Okay, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. Time to talk about fuel prices. And unfortunately, a new survey conducted by the South Australian Road and Transport Association says that many uh, truckies are doing it tough. And it's because of the fuel tax credit changes. The truck industry is facing an imminent collapse with companies facing increased costs and grocery bills set to soar due to a disastrous and ill-advised decision made by the previous government. This survey by the SARTA, that's the South Australian Road and Transport Association, says 57% of businesses could be faced with bankruptcy due to the changes made by the coalition to the diesel fuel tax credit. Now, the issue lies with the 22.1 cents per litre cut to the 44.2 cent fuel excise implemented by former Treasurer Josh Frydenberg during April's budget. While the move saved motorists, that's you and I using cars, around 22 cents while filling up, the savings that were previously on offer to truck drivers were cut short. Now, previously, freight companies would receive 17.8 cents back per litre, but this was cut to 4.3 cents per litre from March the 30th. The move has been lashed by the South Australian Road and Transport Association's Chief Executive, Steve Shearer. He says that if the diminished tax cut credit runs for the entire six months proposed, 
Uh, of course, remember it's due to run out September 28, then the industry could face unfathomable consequences. He's told the Adelaide advertiser yesterday that the trucking industry had essentially been forced to fund the consumer fuel excise cut. However, it's not sustainable. He says truck operators claim the tax credit each quarter, ranging from two grand to over $150,000, and no business can sustain the loss of such a significant portion of their funds. The extra expense could also result in the imminent collapse of supply chains for food and products. Mr Shearer has warned this, however, changes to the tax credit could help salvage struggling businesses. 92% of South Australian companies that feared bankruptcy said they could survive if the new Labor government fixed the coalition's blunder and restored the tax credit from July the 1st, so from a month from today. Now, in early May, you may recall I reported the Australian Trucking Association warned the government risk ballooning grocery bills if the fuel tax credit wasn't restored to 17.8 cents. In a letter to Scott Morrison, the Trucking Association's chair, David Smith, said a reduction of trucks on roads would lead to supply chain issues, which could add $20 per week to the average household's food bill. The fuel tax credit is a significant component of trucking's established business model, he wrote. The food supply chain can only keep shop shelves stocked if operators can offset the loss of the tax credit. Yeah, well, this will negate the cost of living relief which the government sought to provide, was something he also added. Now, they also warned that a number of operators would inevitably collapse in the coming months unless changes were made. Now, currently, the new Labor government has made no comments on whether any changes will be made to the fuel tax credit or whether it will continue to f uh, the fuel excise cut past September. I can't see them doing that, although if, uh, if what the Trucking Association says and if what the South Australian Road and Transport Association is saying is true and there's no reason not to believe them, then perhaps... This change needs to be made for our truckies. After all, trucks are what keeps our country moving. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, well, that's our program for this Wednesday, the very first day of winter. Brass monkey stuff, very cold. Uh, the SES have been kept busy. Over a 1,000 calls due to high winds in the last 24, 48 hours, particularly around the east coast of Australia. Um, we've got snow expected to fall today and over uh, the next 24 hours in the lower Blue Mountains. So, in fact, in areas around 900 metres, so less than 1,000 metres. So you'll see some snowfall, light dusting in the Blue Mountains. That wind chill is really what's making it just horrible at the moment. Okay, thank you for your company this morning on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and maybe you're listening to us on the Prawncast. If you are, please give the podcast a share on your social media. You can call us anytime on the hotline to let us know your thoughts. 0406521250 and don't forget also to comment on any of the stories there'll be more content up there today on the Facebook page 
and give us a subscribe on YouTube. Marcus Paul in the morning, our new YouTube channel is up and running. I think we've already got around 650 subscribers in some five days, which is wonderful stuff. Thank you very much for your support. We'll be back tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of today. We'll catch you tomorrow right around Australia between 5 and 7 for Marcus Paul in the morning. Bye for now. All right, all, please, right? This will get you the goodies.